you think you know what we're going to talk about. But unfortunately, I fell down a damn rabbit hole and I've not gotten out yet. <laughs> Knife bros. I literally googled Sebastian Stan hands. But just when you least expect it, we changed the game. Well, yeah, because like, usually in astrology, they would partner up air signs with fire signs. All right, you can, you can huggle. Time travel stories and... At the end of the day, only one thing matters. We decide. Well, we should make it a topic. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't take German in school. I barely took... I took Spanish and I don't remember any of it. Three Fates Decide Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Three Fates Decide. I'm one of your co-hosts. My name is Mary, and I'm with my other co-host, Liz. Say hi. Hello. Um, our third co-host, Sam, is actually still on vacation. Lucky her. Uh, so it's just going to be me and Liz tonight. And tonight we are going to be delving into the HBO TV series, The Game of Thrones. We did last week talk about, we focused more on the books by George R.R. R. Martin, A Song of Ice and Fire, and the subsequent books. Uh, we kind of went over briefly about the different houses and the different areas. So now we're going to be diving deeper into the actual TV show. So it was eight seasons long, and we're just going to kind of go, kind of briefly go over the plot points of each season and then. We'll be talking about kind of the surprising twists that may or may not have happened per season um, and what we enjoyed and didn't enjoy and what we thought could or could not have uh, been done better. Oh, yes, so. we will. We totally will. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, yeah. Um, I think this could be kind of interesting because um, as we kind of mentioned in the previous episode, uh, Mary mostly watched the tv show and didn't get far into the books um, unfortunately yeah that is something I'm pl yeah. i am planning on rectifying i really am i just haven't had a chance yet <laughs> right meanwhile i'm like i actually i actually started out reading the books first and then i watched the tv show uh just to, just to make it really quickly um i'm actually one of those people where like i heard like there's this new TV show on HBO, Game of Thrones, and then I was like, "What's that?" And then I find out it's based off a book series. So I was like, "Okay, you know, what? let me read this book series and see what's the deal with this thing, and what's the fuss." So I read the books first, and then later I coughed up the money to actually uh, watch the TV show. So I'm kind of going about it in a. Uh, almost like the opposite direction that Mary is. Like, she's mostly a TV viewer and gradually getting into the books, and I'm the other way around. So, yeah. We'll be, it'll be interesting, perspect different perspectives on it, to a degree. It, it will. It will. Yeah. So we're going we're gonna to jump right in and start with season one. And season one, it was 10 episodes long. It kind of uh, focused more on... Introducing a few of the major players in that'll be out throughout the entire the rest of the series. Uh, it starts uh, beyond the wall, and then it goes, and we we meet a few of the uh, Nights Watch and Castle Black, 
Then it moves to Winterfell in the north where we meet the Stark family. The head of the Stark family is Eddard Ned Stark and his wife, Catelyn Stark. And we are we find out that the king, Robert Rathian, is on his way to Winterfell to visit and stay. He's bringing his wife and children to visit because he was betrothed to Ned Stark's elder sister at one point until her death, which we will get into at a later date. He is actually there to ask Ned to become the Hand of the King, be- following the death of the previous Hand of the King, John Aaron, who we will get into at a later date of who he was and his role to play. Then it moves to the continent of Essos, which we talked about last week, and the children of House Targaryen that are trying to reclaim what they consider their birthright, which is the Iron Throne in King's Landing. So we find out that Viserys Targaryen, he's, he is going to marry his sister off to Khal Drogo, who is the leader or chief of the Dothraki, because he wants the Dothraki to help him invade Westeros. And that's pretty much the most, that's pretty much what the entire season was about, was just kind of introducing who these characters were and who, what was going on. The main thing that we find is that King Baratheon wants to wed his son Joffrey to Sansa Stark to unite the houses of Baratheon and Stark. That makes that would make Sansa queen eventually. And so Sansa and Arya and Ned all go south to King's Landing to when they go back because Eddard has taken on the royal hand of the king. Unfortunately, we have a mishap and we find out that John Aaron was murdered and Ned is trying to find out who did it. And he digs a little too deep and hits a little too close to home. And in a surprising plot twist at the very end of episode 10, Ned Stark loses his head. Right. I think we should also mention that the reason why he lost his head was because um, not only did he find out John Aaron was murdered, but he found out um, some secrets about uh, the queen. Yes. 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 That's kind of a big, that is a really huge plot point. That This is true. Yes. Yeah. We find out that the queen has been unfaithful to her husband with her, and this gets a little squicky, her twin brother, whom yeah. she had three children with. Yes. Joffrey being one of them. Yes. The heir to the throne is not really the heir to the throne. <laughs> no. The heir to the throne is actually a Lannister bastard. An incest baby. Yeah. 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 That's a thing in this show and in the book series. So Mm -hmm. it is a huge plot twist. I mean, it's a major plot point. I mean, literally, it's one of the it's one of the many details that kind of drives the conflict that's about to erupt and does erupt by the end of the first season. Yeah, we kind of also should mention that one last bit about uh, those Targaryens. But uh you kind of brought up before. Um, kind of a big thing that happened at the se- end of the season, too. Oh, the 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 fact that um, Viserys gets gets killed, and uh, then Khal Drogo dies, and uh, at his funeral, uh, Danny walks into the fire with three dragon eggs, and at the very end of the season, all you see is her come out of the fire naked with three baby dragons. Yeah, that part. That that that's yeah. kind of a big plot point too 
Yeah, I was going to bring that up in season two. <laughs> well, I mean, it's ha- well, it really happened in season one, so. Technically, um, but season two brought more into it. It was more, you saw more of it, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's true enough, but you know. Okay, to be fair, literally in the first novel, again, because I'm, I'm the book reader, um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of the first novel, actually, the Danny part of the book, her storyline in, in the first novel, it literally ends with her walking out of the fire with the dragon screeching into, into the sky, you know, towards the sky. And, you know, it dramatically ends with, like, and then, you know, the world was filled with the sound of the cries of dragons etc yeah i mean those are like the really major plot points of the first season so uh i guess before we start our commentary a couple of little interesting facts um one interesting fact was um actually in one of the early scenes in the season when we were introduced to um the stomachs there's this bit where they're out in the woods and then they run into a dead stag carcass and that's how they found um, their pet direwolves, which are fun additions <laughs> to the story. Uh, the interesting thing I found out is that actually the dead stag is a real stag that uh, the people responsible for, you know, location scouting and stuff like that, they literally found this dead stag. <laughs> and they were like, hey, we found this thing. Uh, you want to use it in... Uh, you know, to shoot the first episode, and then they're like, okay. And it, so it is a real dead stag. They, it's not like, it's not a dummy. So as you can imagine, it's kind of stinky. So when you watch the scene, you have to be really impressed with all the actors, even the young actor who was playing Bran Stark at the time, that they were able to hide the fact that it is a real dead stag that is rotting and really stinky. (laughs) And they were still able to do their dialogue and their scenes <laughs> around this thing. Yes, because shortly away from the stag is where they found the uh, dead direwolf, was, wasn't it? That had seven puppies, direwolf pups. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, that's where it was. Although I, I'm pretty sure for the mom wolf... Um, that would have to be a dummy of some sort because, like, there there are no actual wolves that are that big anyway. But of course, the puppies are real. No no longer, um, no longer exist. Direwolves used to exist, though. They they were a real thing at one point in time. Right, and of course, the puppies are actual puppies, but you know they're played by um, they're they're like a type of like a wolf dog or um. Yeah, I was gonna say, weren't they like a hybrid? Yeah, they they were either hybrids or they're or they're like you know those kind of breeds that you know would have been like sledding dogs, like those types. That's mm-hmm. that's those are the kind of dogs they actually used in in other scenes where they had dire wolves. Yeah. But anyway, oh, and um, another related thing was um, later in season one, uh, there's actually the scene where Jamie Lannister is talking with his father in his tent, and in the scene. Tywin is skinning a stag, which is very, very impressive visual symbolism of a Lannister dealing with a stag, which is the sigil animal of House Baratheon. Mm-hmm. So, 
it's, a, it's an interesting bit of symbolism. But on top of that, actually, the actor who played Iwin, um, he actually spent time learning how to really skin, you know, how, how to, like, do the skinning for um, deer and stuff like that. So that is him actually doing it for real and not just pretending to do it. So That's I thought that was cool. interesting. That, I yeah. thought that was interesting. Um Okay, so I guess we could get into our little commentary. Uh, what did you think of season one? I, I I will admit the first couple of episodes, I was just like, I'm not too sure about this series. I I will be honest when I first started watching it, but I'm like, I'm going to keep going. I mean, it was good, but it didn't like really kind of catch my attention until probably about the third or fourth episode of the season. And then by the time I got to the end of it, I was hooked. And then when the plot twist happened with um, Ned losing his head, I was like, damn. And I couldn't wait for season two. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I can. I, 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 I mean, like, again, since I read the books first and then I watched the TV show. So the, the interesting thing was when you're actually reading the book. The part about his execution was totally in was a Ned POV chapter, and mm-hmm. you you read this and you you kind of read between the lines and you realize the dude got his head chopped off and you're staring at the page like for me I was reading a book so I was like staring at the page for like a good couple of minutes trying to wrap my head around the fact that this character who has you know, by narrative convention, has been set up as, like, one of the protagonists. He got his head chopped off. And that kind of goes against narrative convention here. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while to, like, process the fact that this character actually got killed and the book is not even done yet. It's not even, like, the very last chapter of the book or anything. It's like there's still a few more chapters to go. So I was like, wow, okay, once that happened, now you truly know that with this author, anything could happen. Any of the characters could die out of nowhere, almost all of a sudden, although it's just to prove that he is a very good uh, craftsman with his writing. He does actually provide you some clues that this thing, that's the shocking thing, was going to eventually happen. It's just that if you weren't paying attention, you would be completely shocked by it. But if you were really paying attention, you wouldn't have been surprised in reality. It's just that the only thing that would be surprising is that he actually does that. But, you know, because, again, you know, if you paid attention, there were subtle clues pointing to the fact that, yeah, they are totally going to kill this guy. They are going to totally kill him one way or another because this guy knows too much. Yeah, but I figured it might happen in like season two or three. I didn't expect it at the end of the first season. I know. <laughs> I, know I know. Thing. I know. It's like, it's like no, I, I knew it was coming because for one, the actor who played Ned Stark pretty much dies in everything he's ever been in right oh yeah <laughs> so it's like the minute i saw it, i was like yeah he's gonna die eventually he's going to die um i guess that's all we have for season one so uh we could go to season two yeah so season two it opens with 
if I re- if I'm remembering this correctly, it's been it's been a little while since I've actually watched the shows, but it opens with Daenerys Targaryen with her dragons, correct? Partially. That that was one of the things that opened up, you know, opened up the season. Um, there was also the bit about Tyrion showing up in King's Landing uh, to be acting hand of the king while his while his dad is busy uh, trying to beat Rob Stark. And it also opens up with introducing another Baratheon. Season two in, introduces both Renly and Stannis. Yeah, yeah. And House Tyrell. Yes, that, yes, they are. They are the other players in the political chess game. And then the, there's another one we have, which is the uh, Greyjoys of the Iron Isles, Iron, the Iron Islands, where Rob has decided he needs to try to win their allegiance. So he sends his uh, best friend, who is also a ward of the Starks, Theon Greyjoy back to the Iron Islands to try to entreat his father to pledging allegiance to Rob Stark. Unfortunately, Theon is not doing what he's told. Yeah, yeah, he that didn't work out. And, oh, I guess one thing we did forget about in season one was the death of Robert Baratheon, the king. Oh, yeah, that's true, that's true. That was a big, that was a big, very big plot point. I mean, right. literally some of the fighting was because of him getting killed. Yes. And then and now Joffrey is on the throne with Cersei acting as the regent to the king. So she's queen regent. That was pretty much the main the main plot of season 2. It was kind of a yeah. it was a, a slower season compared to the others. Yeah. I mean, it could be summarized as like basically Rob Stark, now the new Lord Stark with his dad getting killed he tries to get revenge against the lannisters because to be fair they are kind of the ones who orchestrated his dad being executed so they're basically open rebellion and with the death of robert the thing was was that ned wasn't the only person who figured out that joffrey is not really robert's kid but one of his brothers figured it out as well so technically his brother should have been the king because he is in fact a baratheon and would therefore be the actual heir since he has no legitimate children so stannis the brother is trying to fight for the throne and get rid of joffrey because because again the argument is that uh joffrey's not really his kid so he has no rights to this throne Mm -hmm. i should be the king Unfortunately, Renly also feels that he should be king. Yeah, and it it quickly devolves into a five-way civil war over who gets to be king on the Iron Throne. I guess the only interesting fact to point out is um, the fact that like a lot of the scenes representing uh, King's Landing, which I, I actually mentioned this in the previous episode, it started being filmed in Dubrovnik, Croatia. Um, a lot of the filming for this TV show was primarily up in um, Belfast, Northern Ireland, especially like the indoor scenes where, where clearly they, they would be studio sets. But you have the introduction of Croatia as being one of the location, outdoor locations. And you gradually start seeing more and more of it as the seasons go on. Um, I believe the other bit of the story we didn't mention was um, Jon Snow being at the wall and he is beyond the wall as well 
some of those scenes are actually filmed in Iceland from what I read. So it's like very extreme, <laughs> different locations that they spent their money to produce what was truly an amazing TV show. Yeah, I think that that's pretty much it for season two. What did you think about the season overall? It was okay. It wasn't the best season, but it was better than some of the later seasons. Yeah, I mean... I, I, I feel the same way. It's like, it's the kind of season that you do need to have because stuff did happen, but it wasn't necessarily very exciting um, stuff per se. Like there weren't any huge shocking plot twists or anything that, you know, would match up like the death of like uh, a protagonist. I mean, there was a pretty epic battle, which was pretty good at the time because with the success of the first season, um, HBO was able to up the budget a little bit. So they actually produced a battle scene, which they very clearly didn't actually film for the first season because they didn't have the money for that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess for me as a, as a book reader, I remember reading basically season two is like a pretty good adaptation of the second novel in the series. I remember reading that book and I was like, what the hell are you idiots doing? <laughs> because it's like some of these people are like fighting, like getting involved in the fighting for no damn reason. Like the one person I thought was the stupidest participant was Renly, actually. Because under no circumstance, okay, under no circumstances did Renly have the slightest argument to want to be on the Iron Throne, quite frankly, because he is the youngest brother. So in terms of, you know, traditional inheritance law that, you know, Westeros has that is, again, like what we kind of talked about um, in the previous episode, it's loosely based off of, you know, medieval Europe. And mm -hmm. you had things like primogeniture is a very common way of, in of inheritance law. It's like very basic inheritance law where presumably the kid of the previous person inherits stuff. And it's like a certain order, like the oldest kid, then the younger, then a middle kid and the youngest kid. And if all the kids are not available, then you would have like a brother or whatever. There, you know, it's a hierarchy, you know, a specific order. So this youngest brother technically has no right to claim anything. I mean, Stannis does, because if he could find proof that Joffrey is a bastard, is a Lannister bastard, then Joffrey has no legal right to the Iron Throne. Stannis would, okay. But Renly doesn't have any such, would, he has no, like, he wouldn't have any legal basis to claim anything. It's pure, like, it's pure gamemanship and opportunistic power grab is what it is. So I thought that was stupid. And incidentally, his dreams of getting on the Iron Throne ended pretty stupidly, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the the entire season was just it kind of it was kind of like a filler season, I think. Pieces into place that played out in the long run, but at the same time, it's like they, it, like you said, it need it was a season that needed to happen, but at the same time, it was kind of like a filler season. Yeah. It was good, it just wasn't it wasn't great. Yeah, I guess if that's it for the second season, then we'll move on to season three, which the excitement ramps up. Yeah, yeah, God, yes. Yes. Season three. Oh my. It's 10 episodes, 
but a lot happens in 10 episodes. We have, obviously, Renly Baratheon is now dead. He was assassinated. Joffrey is secure, has secured his alliance with House Tyrell, and they've, they won the Battle of Blackwater Bay. However, we still have Rob Stark, who has been named King of the North. He... He is still in play. However, Rob was supposed to have married one of House Frey's daughters. However, he does not do that in season two. This was kind of a minor plot point in season two, so we didn't really talk about it. But in season three, it really comes into play. So he hasn't lost yet. However, he hasn't really, he's won, but he hasn't won anything major just yet. Stannis has gone back to Dragonstone to lick his wounds. We find that we we, we see a couple of new people, one being Brienne of Tarth, who has a fairly significant role to play throughout the rest of the seasons. She is taking Jamie Lannister, who was captured in season two, back home. Dion has to face the consequences of what he did when he tried to take Winterfell for himself and failed miserably. Tyrion and Sansa are still in King's Landing and they are now trying to survive the new political climate as is. Daenerys is on her way to a place called Slaver's Bay to try to raise an army to to sail across the sea and take back Westeros and the Iron Throne. And up beyond the wall, we have what is known as the White Walkers. They've been a threat that has been whispered about. However, they're on the move. And we we finally see them in season three more so than we did in the first two seasons they were hinted at in like the very opening episode of the first episode of the first season but afterwards they're just kind of like whispered about like they're not they're really not thought to have been a threat they they're thought to have been a myth however that myth is real oh yes they're very much real and we have one other player that we meet in yeah in season three and that is mance raider who is known as king beyond the wall who has united the uh, wildling tribes under his rule. And a lot of shocking things happen in season three. A lot. Yeah. One of them, well, one of the first ones I, I think most people would feel is a shocking thing was the fact that um, Danny uses her dragons, the uses her dragons to get her an army. Yes. That was pretty dramatic. That is pretty dramatic. There's also um, the fact that both Tyrion and Sansa are being punished by being forced to marry. And Tyrion, as we, as most people know, if you've read the books or seen the show, is is a dwarf. And Sansa is obviously a normal-sized woman. Yeah. That was, that was kind of, it's not as, that was kind of a shock, but it wasn't as shocking as what happens to Rob Stark, Caitlin Stark, Rob's wife, and most of the Northern armies. Yeah, the Red Wedding was pretty bad, yeah. We have something called the Red Wedding that happens. And that is when Edmure Tully um, is to be married to one of Walter Frey's daughters. And at their wedding, after the wedding, they're they're still uh, celebrating. However, House Tully and House Frey align and have been paid off actually by House Lannister, which you find out at the end, and basically murders them all in revenge of Rob having the audacity to not one not marry one of the Frey daughters and two for having the audacity of trying to rebel against 
the true king, which everybody says is Joffrey Baratheon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the big final shocker of the season. Mm -hmm. uh, any other plot points we should mention? Or I think it's pretty much about it, really. I guess in terms of like interesting facts to mention um apparently at this at the uh, infamous red wedding um in the scene there's like a band playing and apparently the drummer from coldplay <laughs> was one of the extras <laughs> which i thought was pretty funny i i didn't know this until like i read about it like afterwards but i thought that was kind of funny what it what so what did you think of the third season it was good there was a lot more happening in the third season than the second season obviously it was more, it was a there was a lot of shock at the red wedding because literally almost all of your protagonists are now dead right and you're like damn this man just like he he really keeps you on your toes with i can only imagine what it was like when you read the to read the book and read that scene yeah oh actually you know i i just suddenly remember there is one other interesting fact to mention the whole concept of the Red Wedding, surprisingly, is loosely based on an actual historical event, which I thought was kind of shocking. It wasn't a wedding, but basically it was something that happened among Scottish clans where one faction invited another faction to a dinner that was in essence um, being hosted in honor of, I think, the King of Scotland or something like that at the time. And it was a trap. It was a total trap, and a lot of people got murdered there. And of course, it was called the Black Dinner. So you guys can totally look this up. It, it is a thing that happened. Yeah, I, I have to say, like, when I read The Red Wedding in the book, it was very shocking. And again, again, like, with Ned's execution, I had to sit there for, like, a minute or two to, like, really process that, oh, my God. Oh, my freaking God, this is happening. And the thing was, was that what made it particularly sad to me as a reader was the fact that um, it was a Catelyn chapter that this was happening in. So you're reading this horrific mass massacre uh, from the perspective of a woman who is watching her firstborn child being murdered in front of her. And she's like watching all this craziness and she's struggling to figure out what to do and i thought the chapter was particularly sad because the way it ends is that she can feel somebody behind her like grabbing her and like almost like a chokehold and she could feel the knife pressing up against her throat and her last thought is like you know don't cut my hair ned loved my hair and then black so yeah it was very sad reading that particular thing bit in in the book I, I was like oh my god i you know you really you really felt for her you really felt for her yeah i guess the other thing also was like the fact that this even happened at all to be honest in a sense when i was reading you know about the red wedding in, in a sense i was surprised yet i wasn't really surprised at the same time like i was surprised at how brutally descriptive it was in the book but at the same time the fact that something like this was going to happen it completely did not shock me or surprise me at all because the thing is is that again like what we mentioned what i meant what we mentioned earlier is the fact that um george r martin does actually use foreshadowing pretty heavily in the novels and the thing was was that he did actually give you clues and you do see a little bit of this in the tv show if you were to rewatch season three again but there were actually clues that 
something was going to happen because the thing with the phrase, especially Walder Frey, was that a lot of times, almost every time he gets mentioned in the story, one of the characteristics that pops up that gets mentioned a lot about him is that he is a bitter, spiteful old man. So you have been warned on several occasions that this you are dealing with a spiteful old man who is greedy for money and power and, and whatever. So you think that breaking a promise with a guy like this is going to end well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, you know, when Rob doesn't marry one of his daughters, like he was supposed to, you you should already have in the back of your mind that this guy is not going to just sit down and take it. The fact that, that he co-orchestrated, you know, a massacre at his daughter's wedding shouldn't actually shock people. But, you know, it, it, it does, it, it, it's still shocking just the same, even if you do kind of expect something. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Yeah, it was. It was really crazy. I guess, I guess before we move on to the fourth season, um, one last thing was the whole fact that Tyrion and Sansa had to get married it was it was like very sad and kind of twisted and yet it actually kind of made sense because there is a reason why Robert wanted Joffrey to marry Sansa to begin with because not only is it because it's like oh you know this is my best friend's daughter and my son you know they should get married they're like the same age you know it'll be like we'll we'll be we'll be like in-laws and the way it should have been it's not just that. It's a political advantage thing. It, it, there is a practical advantage thing. I mean, with somebody ambitious like Cersei Lannister, the Lannisters in general, knowing her, she would have protested any of her babies marrying somebody that she doesn't approve of. And yet she mm-hmm. pretty much approved of the idea of her son marrying this girl. Well, why? Why would that be? Well, it's because by marrying this girl, her son would get the connections to some pretty major families in Westeros. It's it's politics. It's all politics. I mean, she's a Stark. Okay. So her family's the ruling family of the North. Her mom is a Tully. So her grandpa is the ruling, is the ruler of the Riverlands. And Catelyn's sister, so Sansa's aunt, is married to the late Lord Aaron, who was the ruler of the Vale. And she has a son who is now the new Lord of the Vale. So Sansa's cousin is the ruler of the Vale, in essence. So you, so she's connected to three powerful families in Westeros. So you kind of think that you would want the heir to the throne to marry a girl who has these connections. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so the fact that they changed the groom to Tyrion, it still fits the the power grab thing, the politics. But of course, as a both as the audience and as a reader, it's kind of creepy because you have grown up marrying a teenager, and in actuality, um, it's kind of worse in the book because they aged up the characters for the TV show. So in reality, in the novel, Sansa is actually like twelve, and she's marrying a guy who's like in his 20s yeah that is a thing yeah so i guess we'll go go on to season four season four a lot happens with rob stark and his mother and wife and most of the northern army is now dead joffrey has joffrey feels like he's won because he because they won the battle of blackwater though it's actually his grandfather who who the victory belongs to and which is Tywin Lannister and Tywin has granted 
the Bolton's rule of the North. So they are on their way to Winterfell to basically take it back and take over. The Ironborn, which is the the Greyjoys, they are being actually being hunted down and killed by the bastard son of the leader of the Bolton of House Bolton, which is Roose Bolton. His son Ramsay Snow, because in the north the the bastards are given the last name of Snow, and Ramsay is taking on. He is sadistic, is the best way to put it. He is a psychopathic, sadistic person. Stannis Baratheon is still trying to take over. However, he's not really doing well with that has turned his attention to the wild to Mance Raider and the wildlings that are um marching towards the the wall they've now uh the Lannisters have secured a alliance with House Tyrell by promising Joffrey uh in marriage to Marjorie Tyrell which is the daughter of Lord Mace Tyrell uh there's only two kingdoms that have that have kind of kept out of the War of the Five, and that's the Vale of Aaron and Dorne, which we kind of learn more about the Vale of Aaron in this season. We learn about Lisa Aaron, who is the widow of John Aaron, who was the former Hand of the King, and we have Peter Baelish, who's also known as Littlefinger, for reasons we'll leave to the imagination as to why he's called that. He has, he's become Lord of Harrenhal, which is this huge burned out castle. Peter Littlefinger Baelish has gone to the Vale of Arryn to woo Lisa Arryn into marriage because he's trying, because Tywin is trying to secure their alliance to have them side with the Lannisters in taking control of the country. However, we have Dorne. And while we're trying, while they tried to placate Dorne by sending Princess Marcella to marry the Prince of Dorne, Tristane. Unfortunately, we have things go very wrong with that. That we don't really find out what happens until about season, till the end of the season in season five. We also have across in Essos and Slaver's Bay, Daenerys has now gathered an army of 8,000 unsullied warriors. She has declared herself well she will declare herself as the queen of marine which is the last of the three slaver cities and across and beyond the wall the wildings are under mance raiders and he's they're trying to go south because they know the white walkers are coming and they know what's going to happen if they stay in the north there's a lot happening in this season one of the shocking events that is a huge plot point is that at Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding, Joffrey gets poisoned and Joffrey drops dead. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of a problem when the king uh, drops dead at his own wedding. The primary suspect for this is the last person to have provided food or drink to Joffrey because. Evidence was pointing to Joffrey having been poisoned because he started coughing not too long after he was drinking some wine. And of course, who was the person who poured the wine for him? It happened to be his uncle Tyrion. 
So now Tyrion becomes primary suspect number one. And as his child bride, Sansa is his accomplice, apparently. So he gets arrested and somebody sneaks Sansa out of there. And then we have Tyrion on trial. And he is very much aware that evidence is being stacked up against him. Even though he claims that he has nothing to do with Joffrey's death. So he decides to declare trial by combat. And he has to select a champion. And we and guess who is his champion? Oh. It is someone who is very much interested in getting revenge on House Lannister. Yeah. That was where um, the Martells kind of come into the picture. Because they kind of have some beef with House Lannister. Because um, an event that happened 20-odd years earlier was that their sister was brutally murdered by a Lannister lackey who just so happens to be the champion representing the crown in the trial by combat. And this is the perfect opportunity for House Martell to get some revenge happening by killing this guy. So, of course, Oberyn Martell, who happens to be a Martell in town for this trial... He decides to be Tyrion's champion. And oh my gosh, that trial by combat was trial by combat was intense and insane. Then we get some dramatic battle at the wall. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Very well shot. John got to be a com- almost like a commander in the battle where uh, you had the wildlings attacking and the Night's Watch standing their ground and eventually beating them. That was that that was pretty much it. I mean, unless there's like something else we're missing, you think? Well, something that happened was the fact that Peter Baelish has married Lysa and Sansa is now in is now at the Vale and Peter ends up killing Lysa for threatening to kill Sansa. So that was a pretty yeah. significant thing that happened. Like I was saying when we were talking about season three was that Sansa is a very valuable political pawn, if you will, in, in, in this in this giant chess board. So she's more valuable than a lot of a, a lot of the other characters, actually, uh, when you think about it. So her life being threatened is a serious problem. Especially for Littlefinger. Because as we find out, he is a very ambitious uh, chess master. And anyone, including his wife, threatening his valuable political pawn needs to be dealt with. And he does deal with her. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that happened. There, there's not too much else. So what did you think of the season overall? It was a good season. There was a, a lot happened. A lot happened. Overall, I kind of thought, like, it, it was good as well. Like, I agree with you. I thought what was interesting was, like, the, um, the, the infamous wedding, which people refer to as the purple wedding, because somebody's face kind of turned a bit purple there. Yeah, just a little bit. I th- what I thought was interesting was actually that the script for that episode was actually written by George R. R. Martin, which was pretty good because he kept it kind of a mystery, as to who did it. Who killed Joffrey? And of course, you do eventually find out who killed Joffrey. And it was interesting. Right. 
how it it actually made a lot of sense who did it um and why they did it there's not much else i can say about it yeah i mean i guess the one and only comment i have left is that this is like the last season where i had very few complaints about because starting in season five i started having complaints about it so (laughs) i don't know about you but but starting with season five i was starting to have complaints about the show thanks for listening everyone catch us next time and see what we're going to talk about because the three fates decide